If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to Mark chapter 15. For about uh, as many weeks, maybe 15 weeks, we have been walking through the essential gospel of Mark, talking about the mystery, Mark's mystery, this mystery that we have been given to know. I usually allow our kids to go out this time, but have they already rolled out? Kids, if you haven't rolled out, go ahead. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> Mark chapter 15 is, um, is the climactic moment. Everything builds to this moment. It, it happens in Jerusalem. Jesus is taking this winding course, winding down to this place, to Jerusalem. Just a couple of weeks ago, he talked about a, a second coming. He talked about this coming of the Messiah. He talked about this this day that, that has happened and is happening and will happen. And no one knew what he was talking about. Last week, we talked about uh, this, this painful, these painful last moments of Jesus in the garden as all of his friends who swore, even unto death, I will never desert you. And where were they? They were asleep, running away even without their bedclothes. And now in, in chapter 15, we, we get to this chapter, and, and I hesitate to even attempt to teach it because this isn't, a, this isn't really even a, a, a teaching chapter. Uh, I, I don't want to explain it to you. I don't want to get into the details, but because to do that, that misses something. Mark, Mark even in, in his writing, isn't trying to explain what happened. He just wants you to feel it. He just wants you to be there and experience it for yourself because for Mark, the experience of Mark 15 is enough. So today we're going we're gonna to read some and then I'm going to challenge you to listen some and, and we're going to talk some, but, but really I just want you to go ahead and place yourself in this scene. Really there's three scenes in Mark chapter 15. The scene uh, begins with a trial before Pilate, then there is a crucifixion scene, and then there is a burial scene. So let's begin in Mark chapter 15, beginning in uh, verse 1. Uh, we'll put them on the screen, this, this first scene, I'll put it on the screen, and then we'll talk just briefly about it. This is very early in the morning. The leading priests, remember where we left off, Jesus was in this kind of mock trial before the Sanhedrin, done in all the wrong way. They would never have done a trial early, late at night or early in the morning. They've never done a trial away from a public place. They, would, they, they completely distort any kind of rule or justice to find some accusation against Jesus. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus and led him away and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer for them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing. Much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. 
The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked for he had realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of, what's the word? Envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd. They weren't going to let this go. And they demanded the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back. Remember, notice that he says, this man you call the king of the Jews. And they shouted back two words. Crucify him. Pilate asked, why? What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. It would have been about 600 men. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Um, Pilate likely is, is not very concerned with the Sanhedrin's charge against Jesus. So the Sanhedrin, they don't have any authority to, uh, to give a sentence, to give a death sentence to anyone. So what the Sanhedrin can do, what the high council can do, is come up with some sort of charge that they know will influence Pilate, the Roman governor, to, to execute what they, the, 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 the sentence they want executed. But there's almost a sense in this story that Pilate doesn't trust the Sanhedrin any more than Jesus does, Right? They come to Pilate with this charge. Here is this man. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And, and, and Pilate just asked him, are, is this who you are? And I think Pilate's concern, if anything, is, is, is Jesus a threat to Caesar? Is Jesus a threat to the Roman government or to establishment? Is, is Jesus a revolutionary, a, a, a usurper? Is Jesus a threat to his world? And the answer is yes and no. And, and Jesus' response to the question of, are you the king of the Jews, is intentionally ambiguous. Jesus simply said, whatever you say, you have said it. Yes, he, he, he is a king, but not in any sort of sense that, that the Jews or Pilate could have comprehended. Then, to Pilate's complete astonishment, Jesus goes silent. And, and sometimes we look at silence as this, the, a, a sign of weakness, or maybe he didn't know what to say, but, but not here. Like, we're, we're meant to see his restraint as a glimpse of one who is truly powerful. He asserts his authority not through some lofty speech or incredible display or, or it, it, awesome display of knowledge, but he displays his power through utter submission in the most difficult moments. He displays his power by fully submitting 
to God's purpose for his life. Do you see that? It comes out in a prayer he said, Not my will, but yours be done. And Pilate, like the rest of us, are left to try to figure out who is Jesus. And Pilate, uh, uh, apparently and ironically, Pilate is in no way, shape, or form a good guy, but he's kind of sort of redeemed a little bit by Mark because uh, apparently and ironically, he finds Jesus not guilty. And while he doesn't go all out to, to rescue him, he, he doesn't understand what is happening. And so instead of taking some time or trying to rescue him, he just decides to appease the crowd that is crying for Jesus' crucifixion. And then Jesus moves into this really important scene. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was, a, it was the procession of a king. It was a procession of a conquering hero. Remember the, the shouts of Hosanna, save us, the, the palm branches. This whole scene is this incredible ticker tape parade of a conquering hero, a, a, a majestic leader. And, and in this scene, Jesus endures um, a kind of paradoxical enthronement, a coronation, if you will. Beaten and battered, he wears the color purple in his bruised flesh as well as the fabric draped over his broken body, the colors of royalty. On his head is placed a crown, a crown of thorns, and then the whole cohort, 600 men, kneel before him but it's all in mockery and there's this incredible thing that that happens in this and I know maybe you've seen the passion of Christ I don't want you to miss the pain and the anguish and the suffering because his body is broken at this point bruised and beaten and bloody this is an uh, an r-rated scene at the very least and we are to see in, 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 in the blood that, that's pouring from him, in, in the bruises and the welts and the sores, in all this suffering of, uh, on him and in him as they spit on him, in his marred and broken body, we are to see, and I, and I warn you of this, the true face of sin. Sin puts on this disguise that everything is okay and everything looks fine, but here we see its true form. Are you with me? Maybe it doesn't show its wounds on us as visibly, but here is the true face of sin. And the creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha and Omega, Lord of lords and King of kings is crowned and led away to be crucified. This next scene, honestly, I just want to, I just want you to hear it. Uh, I'm going to put a picture on the, on the screen. This is a painting from uh, Peter uh, Lastman of the Passion of Christ. And uh, I just want to read this scene. It's really only 21 verses. Everything in Mark builds to these 21 verses. But I just want you to, to step into the scene, consider this, 
this painting, maybe it'll help you draw into the scene. Where would you find your place in it? And I just want to read this next section to you, this next scene, the crucifixion scene to you. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the country, countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him at noon darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock then at three o'clock jesus called out with a loud voice eli eli lama sabachthani which means my god my god why have you abandoned me some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet elijah one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem, were also there. It plays out in 21 verses, but make no mistake, this is a long, drawn-out, painful parade. After he leaves the praetorium, after being mocked in this mock coronation, his flesh has been shredded, he's been beaten and bruised, he's... he's Likely, likely beating, likely close to death already. But they don't take the quick route to Golgotha. It's just right around the corner, but they don't take the quick way. How do they go? The long way round. They want this pain to be there and hang around. They take 
the long winding way, take as long as possible, the most painful public path. They parade Jesus and his pain. It is such a long path that they have to recruit someone, a man named Simon from Serene, to carry the cross for Jesus. And I love that Mark includes this, this special note. Hey, this is the Simon you know. His children are, are Rufus and Alexander. Like, like the people who this gospel was written for, they would have known those people. Do you see? And, and in a brief moment, Mark says, hey, this really happened. And finally, agonizingly, they make it to Golgotha. In an ironic twist, he's, he's offered at his death the exact same gift he was offered at his birth. Do you remember the gift of the wise men? The gift of the magi, it was gold, frankincense, and an essential oil for you ladies who are out there. Myrrh is this kind of, a, kind of antiseptic kind of uh, can, can have some like pain relieving qualities and they offer to Jesus not out of sympathy not because they want him to be healed or, or taken care of but if he takes this it's going to prolong his suffering and then we go to the clock there's three watches that show up next a 9 o'clock hour, a noon hour, and a 3 p.m. hour. And, and uh, Mark displays this, this incredibly climactic moment in just four verses, in just four or five words. He simply says in verse 24, at 9 a.m., the soldiers nailed him to the cross. And it's this ironic, again, once, ironic moment. Once again, Jesus' ministry is clear. The moment of his death parallels his life because he's placed alongside who? Sinners, criminals, outcasts. And we were reminded of exactly who Jesus came for, right? Not the saint, but the sinner. To seek and save the lost. Jesus has at this point been, been mocked by the high council, the Jews, the Jewish Sanhedrin who has beaten him. He has... Uh, been mocked by the soldiers who tortured him and punished him. And once again, now even on the cross, he is mocked by the crowd as they prayed in front of him. They shout at him and yell at him. The cross offers him neither sympathy or sanctuary. Crowd like uh, so many, they only see his humanity. There's so many signs of misunderstanding of who Jesus is in this moment. They, they, they don't see him or believe in him. They think even in moments that, that maybe he's Elijah or somehow calling for Elijah. He's this prophet. They see him, but they, there's a mystery surrounding him that they can't, their, their hearts can't see through. And at noon, it says, darkness covered the whole land. A veil of darkness covers everything. And it is as if even the, the sun, even nature itself cannot bear to witness what is about to happen. And at 3 p.m., Jesus, as he embodies the sin of all men, feels for the first time the consequence of sin. And what is the consequence of sin? 
separation from God. That's what sin is. That's what it does. Anything that creates distance between you and God, that is sin. And this is Jesus' greatest pain. Man, I think probably worse than the beatings and the scourging and the flogging and the ridicule, probably worse than that was the desertion of all of his friends and those closest to him. But still even greater than the pain of his, his friend's desertion, the false testimony, the, the even, even a greater pain than the piercing nails, what hurt Jesus, what he experiences for the very first time as he takes on the sin of all mankind is separation from God. And he cries out what, what would be natural for him. A verse from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? For the first time, Jesus is alone. Verse 37 says, with another loud cry, he breathes his last. And as his last breath passes his lips, says in verse 38, and this is really important. We don't have a bunch of time to talk about it today. But it says that the temple, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. So if you remember your Leviticus, uh, there is a temple and inside the temple there is a holy place and then there is a holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, who lives there? There's the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of God. It is God's, the point where God touches the planet, that, that famous Michelangelo painting of the ceiling. You know what I'm saying? That, the Holy of Holies is that place, except for there's a problem with the temple system because who gets to go into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. Only the high priest. And how often does he get to go? Once a year. And so all that is God is contained, is hidden behind this barrier, behind this curtain. This, this curtain, which was meant to bring God and man closer together, becomes a barrier. It becomes what divides us and separates us from God. But as Jesus breathes his last, what happens to this curtain? This is a massive, immense, uh, incredibly large curtain. It's 60 feet wide. It's four inches thick. It's not, a, not like a, a bath curtain, right, from Walmart. This is a massive, incredible structure. And it's torn from top to bottom. And that thing, that, that, thing that, that separated mankind from God has been torn down. Sin, the barrier between us and God, is destroyed. Scripture said Jesus made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. The way to life, the way to return back into the garden, to be with God, to see Him face to face, to walk with Him again, is once again open for everyone. There's one final scene, and it's a curious scene, but it's important. We'll go ahead and put it up. This all happened on Friday. 
the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Why include this scene? It begins with Joseph of Arimathea. Um, notice that he's a part of the high council. You remember that high council that not too long ago held that secret meeting to bring up a false charge against Jesus. And when he gave the false charge, they ripped their clothes and beat Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is... Why pick him? But he takes a risk, it says, and he goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. Pilate can't believe it. He can't believe that Jesus is already dead. Um, uh, I know this is horrible and tragic, but it's true that death on a cross usually took days, almost even up to a week sometimes. They wanted it to last as long as possible. It wasn't meant to kill you instantly. It was meant to torture you to death. So when Pilate hears that Jesus is dead, he's, he can't believe it. In fact, he, he won't even take Joseph's word for it. He goes and uh, requests the Roman officer to come and to confirm it. The officer said, yeah, he's dead. So Joseph knows that Jesus is dead. Pilate knows that Jesus is dead. He's confirmed it with a Roman officer. The women who are there, they're at the scene. They follow this whole scene along. They know that Jesus is dead. The stone in front of the tomb knows that Jesus is dead. All concur. All agree. This whole, last te- this whole last scene says one thing, and that is Jesus is dead. He is dead and buried. Thoroughly, irrevocably dead. No question. The story is over. That is all she wrote. If anyone wants to know what God is like, chapter 15 of Mark is Mark's answer. Paul says later that you can forget everything else. Even for him and for his ministry, for for all the great things that he taught and all the great things that he said, he said you you can forget any of that and all of that because he came to preach Christ crucified. Because in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we have all we need. Do you see that? Paul says this moment's enough. We don't have to read chapter 16 yet. This moment is enough. 
This moment teaches us what God is like. It teaches us everything we need to know about God and what he wants for us and his feelings for us. I know some people say, well, well, God is cruel or God is judgmental. Our world is super famous for that right now, right? Like churches are judgmental. God is so judgmental. Why is he so judgmental? And Paul says, no, no, no. Everything you need to know about God is in this scene, is on that cross, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that those who believe in him would not perish but have the gift of eternal life. What is God like? We need no other answer than the cross. Jesus tasted death for all. One died for many. For love God sent his son to die so that you might live. So how will we respond? I told you this story isn't to be studied, but to... But, um, Mark almost invites us to walk through it. We get to be a part of the crowd as the Sanhedrin falsely accuses Jesus. We, we get to be uh, part of the Roman cohort as they, they, they uh, flog Jesus. We kneel with them in, in mock worship. We, we get to be right there next to, to Simon as he carries the cross we get to even be nailed beside him on our own. We were there standing beneath the cross with the women and the soldiers. We were there when they wrap his body for burial. We were, we were right there when they rolled the stone that sealed his tomb. We are right in the thick of it. How are we now to respond to the death of Jesus Christ. Again, Mark gives us an unlikely example. Remember at the foot of the cross, there stands one, a Roman officer, a centurion. So a centurion is a commander of, of maybe a hundred men. Uh, and, and you don't become a centurion, you don't become an officer, a commander, without having battle experience. So this centurion, this Roman officer, was an experienced warrior. He is battle-hardened soldier. He is familiar with death and is likely witnessed many men's dying moments. So this man who is familiar with death and dying and pain when he witnesses the death of Jesus Christ he sees something different stay with me he gets a glimpse of what the magi saw in that manger are you with me this Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross in Jesus death he gets to see what the shepherds in the field came and saw for themselves, what the angels in the heavens proclaimed to them in song. He sees what the voice 
from heaven proclaimed at his baptism. This man truly was the Son of God. I don't know the rest of the story of this Roman centurion, but I do know this. If you make that claim faithfully and truthfully, your life can never be the same again. It no longer belongs to you, but it belongs to him, to the one who died and gave his life for you. So the question is, as you stand today at the foot of the cross, what about you? Who do you say that he is? When you survey the wondrous cross, what do you see? When you survey the wondrous cross, is it enough? When you survey the wondrous cross, what difference does it make? When you survey the wondrous cross, do you see what you need to see? Do you see that Jesus really is the Son of God, sent by God to die so that we might live? In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to approach Jesus' death again in communion. Invite you to align yourself with him, to take the blood, which represents the, the, the blood poured out for us, to, to, to take the bread, which represents his broken body. And again, in this time of communion, I invite you to make that proclamation that the Roman centurion made at this truly was the Son of God, and that makes all the difference. For you, maybe today communion should be a time of repentance. There's been ways and parts of your life that you've turned from God, you've turned your back on Him, you've denied your claim that He is Lord of your life. There have been parts of your life that you've been taking back or holding on to. It's time to release those. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ for the very first time. Maybe you're ready in baptism to make a public proclamation, just like this Roman centurion, that this is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And receive through that power, receive through that proclamation, forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. In just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer, and I'll dismiss you. We have three tables set up for our, our time of communion with him. Invite you to take this moment deeply, deeply, seriously, but to share it with each other also. If there's ways that we can pray for you, maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ in baptism, then, man, nothing would make us more excited and happy than to celebrate that moment with you. If that's you, then I'm just going to move to the back and I'll receive you there. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, he endured an impossible road, a road none of us could have walked or, or gone down. He endured so much. 
Father God, may we realize that we are loved much. That you placed your son through all of this, that he faced down all of this. The mockery and the shame and the pain, the desertion, all of this. Father God, man, I, I see myself in, in this scene and I don't like the way that I look, but God, I know that your son through his blood and through his sacrifices, redeemed and restored me. And God, I pray that those that within earshot of these words would receive that same gift. Father God, if there's someone this morning that's holding back or waiting or, or not sure what they believe, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and stir in their heart. I pray that they would see something today in the cross, that they would see who you really are and your true desire for each and every one of us. Father God, if there's any, any part of us that's holding back, God, I pray that that would be softened and broken down. Let us, Father God, respond to you in truth and in love. We ask for your forgiveness. We celebrate the life that you've given us. And we will never forget the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And so, Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, we thank you for him. And it's in Jesus' name that everyone together says, Amen. I dismiss you to a time of communion.